Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure and honor to be interviewing uh, Dr. Uh, Gerda Trutnowski uh, from uh, University of Graz in uh, Austria. And uh, the topic of this discussion is going to be uh, the recent article that was published in Lancet uh, titled Topical Imiquimod Versus Surgery for Vulvar Intraepithelial Neoplasia a multi-center randomized phase three non-inferiority trial. Gerda, thank you so much again for accepting our invitation and thank you for uh, taking part in our podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. So um, again, congratulations on, on this really great work. And, and we have uh, quite a number of questions. I hope we get through all of them. Um, so I wanted to start by discussing as to how prevalent is um, high-grade vulvar intraepithelial neoplasia, or I'll call it VIN from here on forward? And, um, and what are today considered like the standard treatments for this uh, disease? Well, VIN is not a common disease at all. To be honest, it's rather rare. And in a recent publication, the incidence rate was estimated to be 3.3 per 100,000 women years. That was a Dutch registry study. Um, but also at the same time, they showed that the incidence had been rising uh, within the last few decades. And this is especially true for younger women and especially true for HPV-related um, VIN, which is really the most common type. And it's the type of VIN we were focusing in our study. And um, until recently, the standard treatment was um, surgery with both local excision and um, ablation being both effective and recommended treatment options. Great. So uh, that brings us to, to the next question, which is actually submitted. As you'll see, there are several questions submitted from our uh, fellows in the journal. Uh, this first one comes in from Catherine uh, Hicks Courant at the University of Pennsylvania. And she asked, why did you and your team embark on, on this project? Um, and what is the clinical relevance of this uh, particular scientific question? Um, well, it all started with the um, paper from Dr. Van Zetas, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008. And in this study, she compared imiquimod to placebo and showed that imiquimod is an effective treatment for VAN. And we discussed the study in our team and thought this is really exciting, and, um, but also thought that it would be really important to compare imiquimod to the current standard therapy, which is surgery. So um, when my boss, Thomasina, asked me, oh, do you want to do this study? I said, oh, <laughs> yes, sure. <laughs> and to be honest, I had no idea what I was going in for. It was a lot of work, and, but um, I think it worked out and um, we got really good results. And I think the results actually got the option to, to modify current treatment um, for VN. So I think it was worth, worth doing the work. Uh, absolutely. And not, and not too many times do you get asked, well, do you want to just run a prospective randomized trial? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I had sure. no idea that this would take 10 years. Uh, but exactly. thank God I didn't know beforehand. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So let's jump into the methodology of the, of the study. Can you tell us a little bit about your study design and um, who were your participants in the study? Well, the study was... Um, 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 designed as a non-inferiority study with um, imiquimod being the new treatment. And we were going to show that it's not inferior to the standard treatment surgery. 
and the inferior non-inferiority margin was set at 20%, which we justified by the chronic nature of VAN. And we included uh, patients with HP-related VIN, which is classified as usual type VIN or vulva hybrid squamous intraepithelial lesion. And we included both um, patients with new, but also um, recurrent VIN. Um, inclusion criteria were um, histologically proved VIN. And exclusion criteria were um, um, suspicious um, invasion, uh, pregnancy, lactation, um, severe dermatosis. Um, yes, that's about the main. Great. And patients and, yeah, go were ahead. randomized to in the mode surgery. And, and I wanted to ask you also with regards to the treatment regimen with the Miquimod, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the regimen was, the dosing, um, and also how and when were patients assessed for response? Well, we took a lot of care to teach patients properly about imiquimod um, appliance, because that was a very important part to do, um, make sure they don't have too many side effects. So all patients received the written information and we taught them exactly how to administer imiquimod. Um, we showed them the lesion, made sure they only apply the cream on the affected lesion, not, not over the whole vulva, but only in the affected lesion. And um, we started in with um, once um, per week for the first two weeks, then twice a week for the um, next two weeks, and then up to three times a week, um, which was really a maximum three times a week for a total duration of 16 weeks. And we told them to really look out for side effects. And whenever they had local problems like redness, itchiness, swelling, we told them to stop treatment, wait till all the um, uh, symptoms had subsided and only restart treatment after they were fine. And we assessed um, patients on a regular basis. Um, we actually had follow-up visits um, once a month. And um, the main outcome was assessed at six months. It's when we also took a controlled bunch biopsy. Excellent. And um, one of the questions that came from one of our fellows, Catherine, also, um, she was asking, um, who were the clinicians involved in the study? Were they gynecologic oncologists or, or general gynecologists or both? <laughs> it was actually a bit of a mixture because we had six um hospitals in Austria involved in the study, but all of the clinicians involved were um, experienced gynecologists and all of them had training in colposcopy. Okay. Um, now let's get to the, uh, the, the primary outcome. You mentioned previously that it was um, response at, at six months. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what, what did you consider a response? Well, complete clinical response was um, um, determined by clinical examination um, with um, valvoscopy and um, um, aesthetic white staining. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but we also double-checked and did um, um, histology. Uh, we took another valva bunch biopsy and we made sure that this occurred at the same lesion where the initial bunch biopsy was taken. Mm -hmm. um, 
but um, in case we only had clinical assessment, clinical assessment was the one which counted. And if you had any discrepancies, um, different clinical result and histological result, the clinical result was adjusted to the histology, which um, is sort of common. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, obviously a, a huge undertaking, many, many years. Uh, you, you mentioned close to 10 years. I think there were 146 patients that were eligible, 110 ultimately enrolled. Um, big study, obviously, and awaited and anticipated results. What were the results? Um, well, yes, yeah, we were happy that we finally finished our study and came up with the results. And out of the 110 patients which we enrolled and who were randomized, um, we had clinical results for 107 and 98 patients actually completed the study according to protocol. And this was our main outcome per protocol analysis. And of those studies, uh, of those patients who completed the study per protocol, 80% of patients in the imiquimote group had a complete clinical response at six months compared to 79% after surgery. So this was really, really exciting results uh, to see. And so obviously the non-inferiority was um, um, achieved. So yeah, is, and, I, and I'll, I'll add another question here. I'm often asked that question about my, 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 my study as well. Uh, were you expecting those results? Um, yes, well, the majority <laughs> of patients I treated myself and I followed them all those years. and. That was one of the reasons why I was quite confident to continue with the study because I actually saw that it worked because I mm -hmm. saw these patients and I counseled them and I did see all these VIN lesions resolving. Mm -hmm. So I was quite confident um, that um, we should go on with the study and finish the study and show our results. Fantastic. So now getting into some more of uh, detailed questions pertaining to, uh, to your results, um, and, and you may not have a, a, a immediate direct answer uh, from, for, for some of these, but I wanted to ask you, one of them was, uh, did menopausal status or history of smoking impact the outcomes of the, of the results? What are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Well, we actually looked at that because they are, smoking obviously is a known risk factor. And we also looked at menopausal status. But in our sample, we actually didn't find difference in outcome in, uh, with those subsamples. And um, less surprising, we had a high rate of smokers. Uh, both groups, about 60% were active smokers. And menopausal status was a bit different in both groups. It was like um, 45 to 60% but no difference in outcome. Excellent. Um, this next question comes from Christina Ewing. She's from one of our fellows in UK. And she asked uh, that she noted that 22% of uh, patients in the imiquimod group and 31% in the surgery group were HPV negative. Um, and her question is, was there a difference in response to treatment with respect to whether the patient is HPV positive versus negative? 
Well, this is actually a bit tricky because we actually think or presume that all of our patients were HPV positive because mm-hmm. that was actually our inclusion criteria. And on histology, we had um, positive P16 staining was required for inclusion in the study. Um, but it's true that the COBUS HPV swap was negative in um, 20 to 30% of patients. But this is really due to the um, limited sensitivity of the test for vulva HPV testing. And HPV was higher on the um, HPV DNA probes of the biopsy samples. So I think this is really a limitation of the the test. Okay. Um, The next question actually somewhat related um, is, uh, you also looked at prior HPV vaccination. Um, Do you think that this has any bearing on the outcomes of the study or response to therapy, um, noting that approximately or over 90% of patients were not vaccinated. Well, we expected the vaccination rate to be really low, um, especially looking at the mean age of our patients, Mm -hmm. which was 50, 50, 60 years. Um, So really, no, we don't think this really had an impact of our study outcome because even the patients who were vaccinated probably had that at the later stage until they had already been infected with HIV. Yeah, and and, and, um, as an other related question to HPV, this is uh, from Hussein Elhaj in in France. Um, He was asking, were there any correlations between HPV type or types in the absence of complete response or or recurrence in in this group of patients? Um, well, um, about 60% um, actually got rid of their HPV infection. So the clearance was about 60%. And we noted that in the patients who only had a partial response, clearance rate was lower than in the patients with complete clinical response, um, which um, is, could be expected. And with regard to different types, um, we had a mix of HPV-16 was very prevalent, but also um, the other um, HPV high-risk types, which was um, a group of 12 different high-risk types, but also some patients had um, tested positive for more than um, one subtype. So really in our sample, we couldn't really see um, um, a relationship between HPV type and um, clearance rate. And outcomes, yeah. Um, another question is uh, regarding um, the uh, treatment protocol for patients with unifocal versus multifocal disease. Uh, what did you learn from this study about that, or and, and what is your current practice in in, the, in that setting? Well, in our study, we included both um, uh, patient groups um, with unifocal but also multifocal. And there was no difference in outcome for both groups. Um, so we think, um, independent of focality, that imiquimode is a very good treatment option, um, maybe especially good for multifocal disease uh, because it's easier to apply on different um, lesions and you don't have to do so many surgeries, um, surgical excisions. Um, so, but really, based on the results of our study, there is no difference. And I think imiquimod is a good treatment option for both patient groups. Great. One of the other questions that came up in discussions with our fellows was um, the duration of uh, follow-up for that primary outcome. Uh, first, why six months? And the other question is, 
Um, how did you uh, treat uh, either non-responders or patients who had a recurrence at that point? Well, we assessed our main outcome at six months, but we followed all patients up to 12 months. And we also had a follow-up examination at nine months in between. And um, in the study protocol, we said for patients in the imiquimod group, if they had partial response at six months, um, they had the choice um, either to continue imiquimod or go for surgery. And it was about half-half. Some patients um, decided to continue and were disease-free afterwards, and some um, had surgical um, excision later on. For the patients in the surgery group, um, in the study protocol, we said that if um, they had a recurrence, they had another surgical um, procedure. But after 12 months, this was open. So we also had patients who had another recurrence and then went for imicromite treatment afterwards. I see. Um, the immunodeficient population, of course, obviously it's also of interest. And Jessica's son uh, from MD Anderson, um, she asked with, with increased risk of vulvar dysplasia in this immunodeficient population, um, are there number one plans to explore that uh, population? And, uh, and number two is how should those patients be um, treated? Well, this is a tricky question. Obviously, this is a very vulnerable patient group and we know they have a higher risk for recurrence, but also higher risk for progression. Um, in our study, immunodeficiency was an exclusion criteria because um, yeah, it's just too hard to deal with it in the study. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it would be interesting to look into this patient group, but this would be rather hard to get the sufficient sample size. Um, well, obviously, the best option would be to vaccinate all those patients um, early on to avoid the HPV infection in the first place. Um, we don't really know how good imiquimod works in those patients. So I think um, most people opt for a surgical um, treatment in the first place. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit more now about um, patient experiences. And, and uh, I believe you also evaluated patient reported outcomes. And with imiquimod, I think always one of the fears as well, um, how am I going to be able to tolerate that? And we'll talk about toxicity in a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit about what you learn about patient reported outcomes and experiences from this study? Mm -hmm. um, well, we used quite a few questionnaires to look into patient reported outcomes at baseline six months and 12 months. We also looked at treatment satisfaction at six months. And really, there was um, no real difference between groups. Um, we had high treatment satisfaction in both groups. Um, and I think we also looked at adverse effects, adverse events um, related to treatment a lot. Um, patient had a study diary where they were going to uh, mark um, daily complaints for redness, itchiness, pain. Um, and we analyzed those study diaries. And there were some differences, but overall, it was about the same. Well, in the surgery group, obviously, main complaints were in the first one, two months after surgery, and afterwards, they were better. Whereas uh, in the imic remote group, um, the itchiness and pruritus was um, more in the first two months compared to surgery. But uh, I think overall, it was fine. Um, it depended a lot on how we 
counsel the patients. Mm -hmm. And I think this was very important. And I think it was very important we had all these follow-up visits because when we saw patients and they complained about side effects, we told them, well, just stop. Don't use the cream so much. Wait, less is more. <laughs> Wait mm -hmm. till all the um, side effects vanish and then slowly start again. And I think with this counseling, patients tolerated the cream quite well. Yeah, I think it's a, you, you uh, remarked on something very important, and I, I find that um, works so well, not only in clinical trials, but also in, in, in regular practice, that the more informed the patients are, the more reassured they, they are. I think that uh, the outcomes are ultimately um, much better for them. Um, tell us about the toxicity um, in, this, uh, in this study. Obviously, it's prospective data, so really important to know. What was the actual toxicity with uh, imicromide? Well, we look into local symptoms, but also systemic symptoms like fatigue, headache, muscle ache, um, which um, is obviously maybe related to imicrimod. But then we had those systemic um, symptoms in the surgery group as well, so mm. a bit more in imicrimod. Um, and again, um, with the local symptoms, um, it was um, quite under control. Most was grade one and up to grade two um, toxicity um, for um, erythema, um, um, itchiness, um, but um, actually mostly minor, minor toxicity. Yeah, so uh, symptoms that could be um, tolerable, one could say. Um, now, this next question is from Christina Ewings again. Um, she asks, in addition to the titrated dose regimen, were there any additional methods that you used to improve compliance? Because that's often an issue with patients getting on a miquimod. And if not, what would you propose could be some strategies to improve compliance with this treatment? Mm. Well, compliance is really important topic with imicrimod, and I think when you think about treating a patient with imicrimod, you have to make sure compliance is there and patients come for follow-up visits because um, this is really important to make sure it works. If you're not sure if people come up for follow-ups, maybe this is not the best option. But um, with most people, this was fine. And we had a written information, a sheet, um, everything was um, detailed instruction was written up, which we handed out to the patient. And we gave them a study diary where we asked them to mark the days where they used the Mikumot. And, um, um, and we had all the follow-up um, examinations. And I think they were very important um, just to counsel patients and just go through them and said, where did you apply the cream? And maybe you used it too much or maybe you used it on the wrong spot and just to make sure they do it correctly. And quite interesting, we also had some older women uh, who found it a bit hard to apply the, the cream themselves. So some of them had their husbands doing it for them and it worked fine. So, so all, um, all kinds of strategies. Uh, yes, so got to be creative. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, I want to ask you, because there are some um, surgeons who might say, well, I just, I got to do surgery because what if this progresses to cancer and spreads and therefore um, sort of like, you know, I, I cannot control it anymore. So can you speak a little bit about the concern to progression to vulvar cancer in patients treated with this non-surgical approach? 
Well, it's important to remember that progression to invasion does not occur overnight. So this is not something which um, happens within a few days or weeks. Um, and again, um, in our study, um, in the patients who used imiquimod protocol, we had no um, patient with um, progression to invasion. In the surgery group, we actually had um, four patients with invasion was found at primary surgery. Um, but then talking about compliance um, in the remote group, we had two patients who did not show up for follow-up visits. Um, one, because she was hospitalized for a different reason and she returned um, back to our clinic nine months later. And then we had um, suspicion for invasion and did surgery. But again, this was fine. Um, so as long as um, patients return to your clinic and you can do follow-up visits and maybe do another um, biopsy if you're not sure if this has progressed, you still have the surgical option. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, what would you um, highlight to our listeners as some of the potential limitations of the study? <laughs> Well, one of the limitations was probably that it took for a long time. Um, <laughs> it was hard to recruit patients. And we had, uh, as I said, six hospitals were involved in Austria. But, um, well, the majority of, of patients were recruited in our clinic because they found it hard to um, convince people to do imicrimode if they were set on surgical treatment and the other way around. Um, so it took a long of time. And... Um, obviously, we had some missing values. We didn't have um, histology at six months follow-up for all patients, but we tried to sort of um, get all uh, bits and pieces together, but um, obviously not 100%. Yeah, no, um, obviously, it's a, a great study. Congratulations. Um, and now, Gerda, I wanted to ask you, obviously, I want to be respectful of your time as well. So my last question is, um, you, you, you were obviously involved with this study, heavily involved for so many years, so many learning experiences. Um, moving forward, how should we counsel our patients on treatment options when they present with this diagnosis? Um, how should we proceed? Well, I think based on the study, we know that we have two good treatment options. And really, um, imicrimode is good, but surgery is a good treatment option as well. So I think it's really, really important to counsel patients on both treatment options, see what they would prefer using, um, also look at compliance. Um, so I think um, it's good to have um, the choice. Um, it's good for the patients, but it's good for us as well. And um, uh, if we know the advantages and disadvantages of um, each treatment, um, yeah, we can counsel our patients appropriately. And I, and I often ask this question also of our uh, um, invited uh, speakers when they say, well, uh, doctor, I leave it up to you. What would <laughs> you do? <laughs> Well, um, I think imicrimode is a good primary option. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I agree. I think that uh, it's very, very clear from, from the results of this data. Um, I want to, again, thank you and congratulate you and the rest of your team. And of course, obviously, all the patients that, that agreed to be involved in, the, in this study. Um, are there any uh, additional uh, remarks, uh, summary statements you would like to make? 
Uh, well, I'm really, really happy that we finished up with that study and I'm thankful for all the help from my colleagues and patients and I'm very grateful that we ended up um, being here. <laughs> thank you. Dr. Gerda Trudnowski, thank you so, so much for accepting our invitation, for speaking with us and sharing your thoughts on this really excellent study. Congratulations. Thank you.